Welcome back to the War Horse Podcast, pilot episode number five. Tonight, I am once again surrounded by my weapons. Tonight, I've got my dogs with me, and uh, the storm just blew through. So hopefully, we'll get a long enough break to... um, get some halfway decent audio tonight I need to tie together everything that we've discussed in the previous four episodes Um, if you recall we we wound up last week with a kind of cliffhanger where we're looking at a situation where, you know, we have um, these tools, breath work and death work, and we have these potentials, um, one of which was brought into a sharper focus this week. And that being that perhaps the um, the reason that we go, that we don't like to go to funerals is because not only they, you know, suggest and indicate some level of sadness and sorrow, disappointment, just general dog shit period of time but also I think there's a sense that um, they're just hollow Um, occasionally you get this kind of hedonistic you know counter response which I I can't say I disapprove of you know where someone will fund their own funeral and say I want to throw a kegger, or I want you all, like the Irish wake, you know? There's something, something to that. However, for the most part, I think that, you know, those are kind of rare. Not sure they deliver on much other than kind of uh, collectivizing the, the big avoidance pattern for the time being until the, um, the reality creeps in and as human beings we're certainly deprived of you know this this sense of meaning or you know a closure is not I don't think you're going to get that in any any ritual or you can I mean you can you can button it up for the time being for yourself but it's not going to speak to 
the fact that like Heidegger suggests you yourself are a being with a capital B unto death. And um, in terms of uh, death as a portal, you know, we have we have the possibility that that's in just entirely um, a metaphor or a, a sort of hopeful back to that uh, Vander Clay's like optimistically spiritual and just totally vague. He has a better way of describing it, but it's it's essentially a sort of Protestant American optimistic uh, spirituality, you know, which meshes on the one side real nicely with the New Age, which is, you know, it, cursory examination pretty much shows this is, um, you know, essentially a form of uh, Satanism. Um, not that we need to get into that, just set that out there and stand by it. The second possibility that we have is that there are actual um, spaces, you know, situated on the earth, whether it's like the giant mounds that were found in America or Bermuda Triangle or some, you know, cavern in Antarctica that's buried under ice and snow that we'll never know about some space or or the um I forget the name of it right now the um the particle collider a hadron you know was that what that was trying to do was open up a literal portal so either way that's a second possibility you get the idea there's some space some place in the dark wood or you know uh, way out in the desert or hell maybe in uh, like in movies sometimes it'll be tucked into some some false alleyway and you know in a city <clears throat> which would have been a good segue over into David Lynch but I'll have to I'll have to set it aside because there's a third possibility which is that there are portals they don't necessarily exist as such in some specific physical place like they gen they generally are like this in movies and it's also not just simply a sort of empty metaphor for a hopeful uh, condition where you know perhaps when we die we or, you know, perhaps um, some wonderkind will, will wander in and, and explain to us some type of... It's just essentially kind of another story, you know. It's, it's as disappointing as the, um, the standard American funeral in its way. But you have this third possibility, which would be what? Which would basically be something on the interior that would be um you know one listener 
um, a subscriber um, has has brought up the the conversation at the end of King of Dogs about uh, the frog's egg, which is how I refer to it as well, and. Essentially, what you have there is a discussion about um, this phenomena of uh, structures being mirrored at all different types of levels. The most, maybe the most common one is is just looking at fractals. Um, you know, when you you watch slow footage of of electricity, and then you compare it to um, certain plant structures or all kinds of things. Um, maybe the best example that I know of is the, um, I think it's the cuttlefish who spends several days, tiny little guy at the bottom of the ocean using his tail and kind of his underbelly for days to swoop out this, um, essentially makes a mandala and um, this is as far as scientists know you know they they chalk it up to his mate his potential mate sees in him what and he's an artist you know he's a he's a guy who can keep it together for four straight days so that that's an indication of fitness. This is another example of where this fucking theory just, you know, it might be true. I'm not saying I know or I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's not true. Um, and I do admit it has an enormous amount of explanatory power. But it's also, you know, when you scratch the surface like that, you start to realize how much of it is just supposition and anthropomorphizing and anyway, the cuttlefish at the bottom of the ocean, four solid days, scoops out. It looks to be about maybe three or four feet wide. Um, it's dimensional. You know, it has um, ridges and several levels of ridges so that if you look at it, you can see the relief. And, and it's, it's not particularly like stunning visual piece of art exactly and maybe or maybe not you know is the outcome that he attracts a mate but when I see something like that it brings to mind um, I think I believe it's called psionics or cymatics cymatics I'll have to put that in the notes but this is essentially you know a study of frequencies and the way these frequencies affect matter. Um, really cool videos you can see where guys will take these uh, steel tabletops and disperse some just basic sand on them and then take um, sort of like a a drumstick or a piece of rubber and in the way that you can make wine glasses sing this guy will go around the edge of the table to create this frequency 
and the sand will form into uh, the same shape if he uses the same frequency but if he uses another frequency it'll form into another shape and this is an example of cymatics and so when I look at the cuttlefish I have to wonder if is he really doing this for the visual appeal of this female fish or is he maybe does he have some other set of senses you know that tuned him into something on the floor of the earth there that he knows i mean if we continue on with the mating idea maybe this is the energetic spot where he and his girl are are to get down and to i guess fish fertilize eggs i'm not quite sure how these fish do it but you see where i'm going was this more is is the survival of the fittest quality or the attraction quality if we start ditching evolution which i'm you can see i'm angling towards this at least a radical very very radical uh redrawing of it and maybe we'll have you know opportunity in this talk to get into time i kind of doubt it but it's it's a, it's definitely a feature in my skepticism so the fish what if the fish has detected something else in this area a different type of magnetic field or a stronger magnetic field or um you know we talk about good vibes let's just use that so he's detected you know good vibes and um maybe the female fish doesn't have this or maybe she does and something in his creation helps to amplify that well going back to portals if we as human beings in 2021 are as far gone as much as diminished as it as many many studies seem to indicate and things as simple as uh you know just analyze a few of the the letters home from the civil war soldiers guys who are like 16 17 maybe 20 years old composing prose that you presume they did it in one pass because they don't have a lot of paper they might have an evening it might take them several hours to write the letter there's motivation um, and other reasons for why you know maybe a, a closer relationship with their own mortality being one there's reasons why these letters other than they're just they're just smarter but I think it is also that they're just smarter um, physically you know there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, debate about this we're far diminished from from what we were at i mean when more than 50 percent of the adult american population is not just overweight but morbidly obese i mean just fucking case closed case closed because we know that every system is related to every other system 
we know that the gut biome is directly related to not only just your mental health, how good you are feeling and feel about yourself, but also your cognitive abilities. We know as well that your cognitive abilities are stunted or enhanced by you know, each of the other systems, which at this stage, going back to the the frog's egg discussion, you know, the inner is mirroring the outer as above, so below. Um, we are like physically manifesting this um, maxim of truth. And so my question to pull us out of the cliffhanger is... And I'm not closing the door on um, the possibility of just actual portals. That was kind of the point of the, the cuttlefish story. Remind me and I'll link that video. It's pretty spectacular. Um, but what if in this diminished state of our being, not only have we lost... Um, you know, more material types of attributes. A couple come to mind. There's the fact that within our inner ear, we have this tiny sack of crystals that is suspended in a liquid. And crystals, mind you which is one of these things that we know harnesses and focuses um, certain types of waves, crystal radio, etc. And of course, with the cuttlefish, one point I missed is we know that sand has some of these properties. But in your inner ear, you have this tiny little bag, and if it's, it's set in such a way that it it usually doesn't get disturbed, but as it tilts and turns, this is what indicates to some, evidently some part of your brain, your central nervous system related to balance. And so if this thing goes out of whack, you can have extreme vertigo. Um, I think it's called Meniere's syndrome, that's probably not the correct pronunciation, Meniere's syndrome, where you can have this just violent um, attack. And the way out of this is a kind of ritual that you have to do if you believe it. You you lay in your back and you put your arm over one arm over your head, depending on which ear has gone out of whack, and you roll over to that side several times, and then you roll over to the other side several times. And they figured out they being probably the same guys in the Civil War, because this has been it's one of the few things that you know. I guess you could go to the doctor for it if you want, and they'll prescribe you some drugs and make sure you got your mask on and you. You get everything you need as far as uh, jabs and boosters, and etc. 
but you can also just do it at home in your bed and write this tiny bag of crystals and thereby putting your whole system of equilibrium back into alignment. It's been theorized that, um, that we may have another, well, it might be gone by now, but we have kind of a, a vestigial, a similar type of crystal-like structure that is buried somewhere kind of uh, back behind the bridge of the nose. And I think that dogs actually still have this fully intact. It's been surmised, though, that maybe this is um, some type of explanation for the, the phenomena of the stories where a dog will get left on a vacation in California and the owner's pieces of shit just drive off without him. Three months later, the dog shows up at the house in Iowa and... There's probably, you know, some case you could be that could be made that the dog just smelled the car the whole way. But there, there are so many instances of these things where these undiscovered, you know, superpowers, which of course is where modern cinema and storytelling that seeks to control and limit and circumscribe your, your every movement not you know to say nothing of just traumatize you and as Hoffman says mind bomb you into a state of perpetual uncertainty uncertaintism usually you know this gets, gets wrapped up into some type of uh, cape shit as we say now um, I guess um, M. Night Shyamalan, if that's how you say his name. He made a fair pass at this, I thought, with... I, I didn't see the other two movies, but I saw Unbreakable, which was pretty decent, I thought. And that was quite quite a while ago. 15 years, 20 years, I don't know. So what if one of these vestigial organs that may or may not still exist within us because things are changing you know somewhat rapidly just if you examine the shape of the jaw the way it fits fits into the neck the chin a lot of this seems to have to have a lot to do with uh, testosterone levels but it also seems to have a lot to do with the diet and as we spoke of in previous episodes if indeed we are facing a situation which we are where the soil has been made jejun denuded of its of its nutrients and minerals essential to life and this is all just kind of, you know, we've known this for quite some time. Just keep going about our business, turn to our macros. Well, you know, what if the macros, yeah, they might 
they might perform the operation of increasing muscle mass or keeping your, your body fat in check. And that's fine as long as everything holds together. But what about when things don't hold together and all of a sudden the world or God is now demanding of you that you, as the uh, cliche goes, dig deeper. Well, there's this assumption, you know, that whatever you're going to dig deeper for is still there. And where I'm going with this point is I believe that it is. What all it would be related to, that is just pure speculation. I have, I have a couple ideas. I have to admit that um, it concerns me a great deal that there's the storm again. Hopefully we'll, our audio will be okay. It concerns me a great deal that the human body and these, these tiny little features that we're hardly even aware of. I mean, how many people go through their lives and never know that there's a tiny sack of crystals in each ear cavity? Probably most of them. And uh, how many people go through these comfortable, sedentary, totally anti-heroic lives without ever being pressed, without, without God providing them with a circumstance where they're called to, quote, dig deeper? I think God makes the call, and I think... I, I got to say, it might, it might be 8 out of 10, it might be 9 out of 10 times. Individual humans seem to be uh, not answering the phone. However, for those of us listening to the War Horse podcast, producing the War Horse podcast, this is not us. And... As I pondered this question and had occasion, several occasions to choose whether to to get a pick and a spade, and as Kelly Joe Phelps says, dig down into my mind and uh, see what what could be discovered or uh, amplified or, or otherwise turned up to extricate myself or solve the problem or avoid otherwise certain catastrophe, I have not been let down. And um, this area, many people, BAP has talked about this. Again, Peugeot has talked about this with his kind of focus in in his podcast and discussion on a reenchantment of the world. Well, using these sort of um, ridge lines or, or fence lines, if if you will, 
of discussion, I'd like to make a stab at getting some propulsion forward from a couple of other other guys and we left off with panentheism in the last episode panentheism again is this i believe it's the case um you know wikipedia will tell you it's a a theory or a school of philosophy or supposition God in everything. So in the frog's egg example, where you have this, this, we, we have observed that this is a fact of reality where certain structures are um, repeated, are made larger, are reused, in, in other capacities than where they were first observed. I was recently sent an excellent picture um, looking up into the branches of a tree on the skyline, which reminded me of the, the subscribers um, ident identifying this precise thing by comparing such a picture to the, the bronchial branches in the human lung. And in this case, you know, this is exactly what trees do, right? They convert uh, gas into another gas and it just happens to be these gases that we need to survive. And so If panentheism is the case, God is in all things. God is creating all things. He is sustaining all things. We are not only dependent on these structures, which are in the Orthodox tradition we call the Logoi or the Logi, and our reason, our our emotional and reasoning capacities such as they are um, would suggest yet another uh, mirroring occurrence and with respect to trauma if what we're doing is in healing trauma through breath work through death work which again that quick and dirty I go to Castaneda you know Heidegger has a, a much expanded um, explanation but here I think this is the guy that Castaneda stole it from the motto that I remember is um, keep death as your advisor or death is the only wise advisor that we are afforded um Heidegger goes into a sort of step-by-step -step discussion or uh, examination of these relationships between, you know, authenticity, um, 
which is essentially in his terms like examining not being an NPC let's say that I mean it's a simple it it's pretty much as simple as that I know the Heidegger uh, devotees who listen to this will be shocked but that's what we're going with we're not doing the uh, Verveke Petersonian four hours to uh, you know what do you mean by this do you do you define death as this thing like we don't have time for this shit so if death is our only advisor and we are beings unto death and we have risen to a place where authenticity is an essential feature of our daily life and we're using the techniques that we have available to us in a sense maybe you know we're we're working almost to be one with the trees we're working to be one with this world around us um, I forget what Heidegger calls that or no is it Sartre the facticity of of being you know this is this is the conditions that uh, we find ourselves in one of these conditions is this maddening all-pervasive uh, uncertaintism that has only been uh, leveraged and advantaged upon and uh, exacerbated by many, 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 many decades. In, Hoff in Hoffman's um, analysis, we're talking about millennia of psychological operations. And um, as we're piecing together this situation that we're facing, where we have these outside forces, again, we're not, you know, they're diabolical forces. That's just all there is to it. Um, if you, if you want to go this evolutionary route and spend 16 years explaining and building up this house of cards that's fine we're still going to arrive back here where we have this diabolical dispersive many forces uh, surrounding us closing in on us closing whatever exits might be available and we're we're presented in this way that God seems to do with our, always a array of hope. And it seems to boil down to our own grit, whether we choose that or not. And... where this is hopefully driving 
this conversation is for us to more closely examine this relationship between the reasoning and emotive or intuitive centers of our brain that are categorically split, dissociated from each other in states of trauma. And, um, you know, one failing of the series, I'll put it in the notes and maybe that will um, suffice to provide a salve for, for our needs here. Um, but there is a TED Talk that I was alerted to a few years ago where, and I, I have alluded to this, but I haven't been, I don't, I don't believe, um, explicit on it, where a pretty solid case is made, and it's enough for me to run with it, that we are all living in this, you know, uh, condition of, of PTSD, and we're, this is, this again is BAP's point, this is um, Kaczynski's point, this is um, Linkola's point. Many, 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 many people have made this point from both sides of the quote political spectrum. And um, it seems to me to be absolutely true. And it seems to me to be one of those pieces for our diminished standing uh, in relation to our ancestors. And so if we are going to square up to this at some point, um, and we're going to have to proceed with it pretty quick, but once we square up to it, the, the mechanisms that we, in my opinion, may direct our attention towards involve these deepening these a, a deeper examination of these attributes that we're just leaving on the table um because you get into meditation and you get into yoga and you get into self care or self-improvement and you got your glycine you're sunning your balls um you've worked out your relationships you found meaningful work even. Now granted all this is, you know, probably not on the immediate horizon for, for, for all of us. But I'm speaking of in terms of our, our goals and there are some of us that'll probably skate through the next, you know, three to 10 years and take not a scratch, but we'll see. However, we have the duty to pass something more than drudgery and um, this depressing landscape of, of uh, failure onto our children. We also have the task of, and one of the most concerning features of this time is how many people finally get clued into one angle or another of this spiraling, spiraling set of problems and, quote, obstacles for the, for the, um, the corporate types 
among us. These are obstacles um, to be conquered, evidently. And well, if we're going to conquer them, you know, we're going to need more than fucking platitudes. We're going to need more than scientism. We're going to need more than uh, the blue church, as Vander Clay terms it. You know, this sort of just watered down, um, probably genetic, you know, instinct towards religious experience that's been co-opted entirely by the liberal establishment and just utterly contorted and perverted and you know plugged back in in the form of um, medical tyranny that's all going to have to be addressed but also um, you know the side that I sort of find myself on is in truth almost in almost every way just as fucked up I mean To take a quick uh, journey back to 9-11, um, we, we did mention this before, but it's worth mentioning again. You know, the notion identified by uh, many historians of, of great renown that eventually Empire Abroad becomes tyranny at home this shit was well known and for anybody paying attention um, the threat of of you know terrorism coming to our shores uh, was itself very distorted right just we have another psychological operation and the people that fell for that are honestly in in no better shape. I mean, that obesity that we're talking about, that doesn't exist to the nearly the same degree uh, up and down the West Coast as it does in the South. It's not even, it's not even close. I mean, the South is is holding up the, uh, well, you know, we can mix some metaphors there, but there's way more fat people in the South than there are in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. So is it that the narcissism is higher there? Yeah, for sure. That's a part of it. I mean, have no doubt. The character of the people, um, in my estimation, you know, I, I would trust probably more people in, uh, in most areas of the South than I would in most areas of San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, etc. Especially with, you know, anything, we're just a question of character. Yeah. So, to tie that up and to be very clear, I see a situation in the near term where we you know we come out of this but we're uh we're coming out by this i mean this sort of dynamic where uh i would say you know the liberal communist sort of ang uh side of this whole uh two-sided operation this ongoing dialectic um 
you know, seems to be poised to to drop a hammer of some sort. And we've long known that the, the Republicans, their real job is to just roll over next year and go along with, with whatever they were fighting last year and then turn that against you. So if it was gay marriage, you know, well, we're against this fast forward a year. Okay, if you don't go with gay marriage, then you're out of the Republican Party. You clearly, I mean, this is, this is the point. The point is not that this is not obvious. The point is that it has taken this fucking long for a substantial portion of those that vote red to wake up to it. And so what, my question is not to blame them, you know, it's not any of that. It's not to point the finger. It's to question if the situation is actually such that we're going to have to tune more inward um, as opposed to just return to this, well, the economy is good, so I'm good. Well, mama's happy, so I'm happy. This ridiculous, absurd dog shit that stands in for traditional wisdom has got to die. It has got to get the fuck out of the way to make room for actual wisdom. And you could, you guys can see that if we were able to meld these two, you know, if you were able to take Rupert Sheldrake um, and his, you know, uh, career-spanning investigation, totally scientific investigations into uh, um, ESP and, and related phenomena, uh, supernatural sort of stuff, and you could somehow meld him with um, <laughs> uh, Pat Buchanan or something, you know, you might, well, I mean, I would, I would bet money that we would arrive at a better situation even if it wasn't perfect than what what we have now in terms of anything resembling sanity so try and veer myself back out of this uh political cesspool that we're um i am currently wallowing in and Bring this back to David Lynch. So in David Lynch, we have, I've said it before, when I, what I think of as one of the very few uh, legitimate artistic geniuses of the modern era who was also allowed to operate in the mainstream. And the reasons for that are somewhat unknown. We could speculate on it. He comes from the Northwest. I, um, I understand he spent most of his childhood in Idaho, good portions uh, exploring Oregon, Washington, Montana, etc. Goes off to art school in Philadelphia, I think. Um, his dad was evidently a big influence on him. 
he was a I believe a sort of park ranger again going back to last week's conversation a man who very much loved trees is what uh, David Lynch has described him as and listening to you know reading his biographies and um, the books that he's written listening to several and reading several I take I he's very familiar to me he feels like somebody from my culture from the Northwest uh, you know these these people that were sort of uh, displaced out of the south and the mid-atlantic or oh, coming west and you know in, in in waves and uh living living during some good times for sure uh some of the best living in america or in probably all of human history it would seem to me was on the west coast uh as it was being built up if you've ever looked at pictures of Los Angeles before it was spoiled, phenomenal. Uh, parts of most of the Oregon coast is still, it's, you know, there it's somewhat polluted like everything, but nothing like what you have in California, nothing like even what you have in Washington. But, um, you know, this is the unspoiled, we still had old growth, trees in this in this area where david lynch comes in and um if we fast forward we have a pretty phenomenal career um all the way leading up to you know my point here and bringing it up to uh season three of twin peaks And we've, we've mentioned in essays and discussions this um, episode eight that I remember watching when, when it first aired um, and then going online and the response was like just giant question marks. Other people were like myself were like, that was a masterpiece. Of course, I had the benefit of having a pretty good idea of what was going on. But most people, I think even those types of variety and these types of magazines who comment on these things were flabbergasted. And the reason that I had some inkling of what was going on was because I'd read Michael Hoffman's book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. I keep saying operations, but it's warfare. So, how did David Lynch, who spends a lot of time, you know, when he, as an adult in, in in Los Angeles, that's where he lives now, and he, you know, he's made movies for forty or fifty years. Um, I'm sure he's traveled everywhere. I'm sure he's went back and he might be one of these guys who has a sweet little cabin tucked away on the border of uh, Idaho and Washington that he doesn't tell anybody about. But he's definitely a made man. Um, Eraserhead, I believe, was his first major film and that 
got Academy Award attention, which then he, you know, I don't know that he was super thrilled about it. He says that Dune is kind of his, he won't talk about it. It's his only regret. I think that they sort of threw him under under the bus and it was probably somewhat somewhat of a doomed project and but still I I will go back and I will watch Dune. I've seen the other iterations of Dune and one or I think one of, of the others is really good, but I still think that Lynch's is, is a classic. And um whether or not he did Frank Herbert justice or you know whatever that's another discussion but from there it seemed like the whatever backlash he took for it maybe being a box office failure etc um kind of regrounded him in a good way and forced him to move on you know he makes blue velvet which is then like a instant cult classic the Hollywood trilogy of, um, uh, what is it? Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and I'm going to forget the other one. He also makes Wild at Heart before, you know, Twin Peaks, of course. And he made a, a couple of others. The straight story is the one that sort of, um, we probably don't you know, want to go into a total uh, discussion of the Lynch um, discography, as it were, but the straight story is, is worth seeing because it's kind of like Lynch going against Lynch in a way and Richard Farnsworth is always worth watching. But here's a guy who gets to make these um, sort of obscure movies over a long period of time. Meanwhile, you have Michael Hoffman living up there in, um, again, in Idaho. Uh, Coeur d'Alene, I believe. Very quiet guy reclusive I have dug down into Mr. Hoffman's history I found some those uh, thrift store books I turned up some some old old Hoffman stuff that he I don't know if he's ever talked about it novel he wrote he used to he's put out this newsletter for I don't know 20 years or something And there's a period of Michael Hoffman's career, I believe it's after he gets out of the Associated Press um, and is, you know, feeding his family, doing whatever it is that he does up there in Idaho. Um, he, he's also simultaneously working on his study of conspiracy culture as a culture, a, phen a phenomenon, you know, in America, but also through the inside by studying various, various conspiracies. And he hooks up with this guy named Shelby Downard. And Mr. Downard 
had written a piece that ends up being called King Kill 33. And I'm not sure entirely. I believe that Hoffman was working with Adam Parfrey and uh, Grimstead in uh, on this type of these projects. I think a couple of books and magazine uh, looking at conspiracy culture. So they had kind of they could retreat to irony if they wanted. They could refer to it. Not that Hoffman did this, but I think Parfrey did. But they, they, they could legitimize it in a type of like uh, as a novelty um, while also picking up some of the, the genuine uh, conspiracy theorists along the way and selling books to them. And I think through these guys he meets Downard and he's, he probably runs into the real thing maybe for the first time. And Downard has put forward a pretty original idea called mystical toponymy. And he essentially identifies a series of what would otherwise be known as like, you know, schizophrenic connections, coincidences, um, in relation to places. And one of the main ones, you know, King Kill 33 is, is mostly about JFK and the quote, killing of the king, the wicked King Wicker. And, uh, Maybe to make the point, you know, in Hoffman and Downard's terms, simply by saying those words, the wicked King Wicker, we as listeners are propelled back into a kind of generational or uh, ancestral memory where at another time our ancestors understood that If the powers that be in front of us have erected this giant wicker man and installed a human sacrifice inside of it and then they torch the whole thing, this is a type of threat. The, you know, our ancestors who may have been illiterate and not had a lot of time to study the internet, you know, to look up symbolism and whatnot, this was 100% clear to them. Whereas now, after being subjected to what Hoffman calls the Videodrome, this, you know, electronic, uh, constant invasions, surgical invasion of our minds to, like, lobotomize us almost. Uh, you know, we don't have this capacity. We're lacking entirely these basic facilities that we had um, prior. And I'm not necessarily drawing a direct link between this earlier point about this question of what have we lost? Uh, what vestigial organs do we still have and are not aware of but might need to dig into and activate again, activate our almonds? Um, I'm not directly making that point, but I guess it's there. Um, Hoffman is, is saying something 
more along the lines of like a not Jungian archetype necessarily, but um, his point is that symbolism and the pageantry, the little statements behind operations are where you find the telltale keys. So in some of this mystical toponymy that Hoffman and Downer did together, um, they noticed that there were some peculiarities or, you know, more, more directly stated, some of these kind of winks, nods, tells in uh, the original testing of the atom bomb in the, uh, the land of enchantment of New Mexico on the Trinity site on the Jornado del Muerto which is apparently an old road that come, came up from Mexico heading to Santa Fe and of course in Spanish this means the journey of the death of death and uh, there's no way I can do all of this justice. It simply has to be read. You've got to get these, this book. Uh, I would get both of his books immediately, post-haste. And I've read the first one probably eight or ten times. I think I've said this before. And... Um, Twilight language is in its way just as good. And I, as we mentioned as, as well, you know, Hoffman and Lynch have this, they have this share, this quality of having put out a piece of work, kind of promised that we'll pick up on it in 20 or so years, and then fulfilled the promise in spades. So that's a curious thing. And... Hoffman suggests that essentially what is being, you know, you could, he makes the case. I, I think it's, I think it's a pretty damn good case that the folks behind these tests, uh, they did some pretty weird stuff. There's talk of some sort of vessel that was planted at the first site and um, it's never really discussed, you know, in the mainstream literature. And it was removed, I think, in subsequent tests. But there was some insinuation that maybe this thing was filled with something. And um, Hoffman makes the case that it's essentially a homunculus. You know, some tiny little mannequin that in Talmudic or ancient Masonic Egyptian lore is like Frankenstein perhaps some attempt to bring this thing to life was made and the just endless examples of this odd odd shit that happens uh, surrounding many of these major major operations is undeniable 
you can chalk it up to, well, people are crazy and people are nutty, but then there's this consistency over time that you have to account for. A consistency over generations of um, intent, you know, direction of these and sort of coherence, if you will, between them, where they're all kind of seem to be leading to a similar place with a, the same theme of aren't we so clever and these plebes are so dumb and look what they do. And of course the problem is is that as, as the operations became more effective and as steam was gathered, um, the, they got a hold of this technology um, of trauma and so this loop has been widened and weird ellipticals ellipses have been made in it and it's it's all a jumbled mess and so the few of us that have been forced through some circumstance or another to go inward to start looking at this stuff um, you know you eventually recoil and then hopefully you get pissed off So, in the Twin Peaks episode 8, you know, there's not... Yeah, again, you have to see it. We can't spend two hours just detailing it. But, of course, what happens, just as a quick refresher, is we have this uh, atomic test. And Lynch shows this sort of, like, insect... Uh, demonic entity that enters the fabric of reality and um, begins to cause some, some serious dark mayhem right away. And within the context of the story, you know, this is flashing back to the what becomes the Blue Rose FBI investigation that ultimately Dale Cooper. Kyle McLaughlin character is investigating in the the Twin Peaks uh, series, and um, some you know cognizance of this stuff is indicated by the character of uh, Major Garland Briggs, who is um, an Air Force officer who also works on these Blue Rose cases and is deeply aware of some type of um, supernatural uh, entity existence. You know, he doesn't necessarily ever explain what it is, but we find out that that's part of his job too, and that's why he's in Twin Peaks. As far as I know, David Lynch has never talked to Michael Hoffman. As far as I know, the other guy involved in Twin Peaks, Frost, is, from what I can tell on Twitter, not particularly clued into any of this stuff. Maybe there are other sources they've used. However, Lynch has evidenced the type of integrity over a long period of time that I'll try and go into next through some examples that suggest to me that 
that's none of that explains it. We have the interviews, of course, the famous memes where the interviewer asks, you know, do you believe in demons, David Lynch? Yes, yes, I do. Would you care to elaborate on that? No. Maybe that's not the exact meme, but it's close enough. So I think, yeah, Frost is the other guy's name. Definitely not the guy. Um, according to David Lynch, what he does is transcendental, transcendental or transcend, yeah, I think transcendental meditation. Um, you got to take some classes to get into this. I've never been particularly drawn to, to it. He's been a devotee for like 30 or 40 years and, um, whether or not, yeah, that has some bearing on it particularly, I don't really, I doubt it. The meditation part probably definitely has some major bearing on it. And in his book about making art, he states that he meditates and he, he fishes for big ideas. Whether that works out like he casts his line and then he comes out of a session of meditation with some fully-fledged ideas, probably not the case. Um, it may be to some degree. I bet small pieces do. They fill in the blanks of, of bigger things. My guess is he's an example of you know, some type of pretty stable relationship between the gut biome, the control of his routine. He's notoriously routinized. You know, he eats at the same place. He'll, he'll, what I've, what I've uh, suggested in, in the latest essays is build routines, examine them, and then break them. And maybe continue them for years or maybe just several months. But from what I've read and, and seen, that's exactly what he does. There's a famous story of him going to this Bob's Big Boy in Los Angeles, even after he was famous, sitting down in one of these booths and having a strawberry milkshake, I believe. And um, I think he's right. If somebody asked him about this and he said, well, if you do the same thing, if you build up this routine and you're in the same place every day, well then you know, the spirits basically know where to find you. Well, not to make too direct an, a connection between, you know, holy orthodoxy and this, but to draw the eye towards the act, the fact of ritual here is the point. And... I think the best among us, this is what we're trying to do in a completely chaotic and fucked up situation. Even now, this is what I, I'm trying to do. Not that I'm necessarily one of the best of us, but that's, what I'm, that's why I say trying, you know. Um, I've definitely found this to be true. Um, when I control what I eat and control where I am and control what I do and can plan on that happening tomorrow and then fulfill that obligation to myself 
perhaps this is again just explained in these scientific scientism type of terms where yeah you know i'm building integrity with my inner child or something this is the type of language that i am advocating we abandon jettison immediately and we move towards you can see just by in this discussion i'm not necessarily advocating that you spend six years trying to understand heidegger who scholars spend their entire lives you know and we're i i don't think they come to some great agreement about it i'm suggesting rather that we get what we need and we know we need ritual here i am once again with you staring at my notebook staring at my west german sig and my winkler operator in this case there's some differences the dogs the storm etc um and maybe this will change uh this is just a the early stages of this of this project and of course you do run up into these exigencies um emergencies, contingencies that you need to face um, in order to get anything done. But to the extent that you can build out some type of structure for yourself, uh, you know, my suggestion would be that this is a good thing. And this is one of the, the meanings behind the phrase, you know, made in the image of God in some near useless you know, weak piss in comparison to God manner, I think that we're building our own, maybe rather the language might be that we are discovering, you know, our our little versions of, of Logi or Logoi. These structures that we can inhabit and we can invest ourselves in, sacrifice our time, sacrifice opportunities, and then come through tomorrow on doing what we promised ourselves we would do and over time this bears fruit in the same way that breath work takes time but ultimately can open up all of these doors all doors like you could call it one big door that can go anywhere you want and of course death work in the same way opening up this relationship with the facticity as Heidegger says, of your circumstances changes everything, changes the urgency, the immediacy, and it might not necessarily be what you think. It might not be, well, I just got to rush around and get all this shit done because you never know when I'm going to die. It might rather be that you need to simplify a whole bunch of stuff, slow way the fuck down, and focus on one thing, doing it to the absolute best of your ability and as Jordan Peterson suggests you know see what happens with that I'm not prescribing one thing or another in this particularly so to examine Lynch a little bit more you know I was re-watching the first few episodes of season three and he's always uh, credited 
as an editor. Forgive me, I don't want to break up the stream, so I'm just going to wet my whistle. And so in these first couple episodes, you, you can't help but notice a couple of things that I'll try and touch on just from memory. So you have basically Bad Cooper, um, who is kind of the, the demon Bob has sort of entered this version of Cooper and the doppelganger Good Cooper has been locked up in the Black Lodge for 25 years. And he's released on this time scale, I guess. And um, Bad Cooper, no, you know, probably very acquainted with the ways of the Lodge, is aware of the time frame and has set up a situation where He's made a tulpa, a sort of NPC you know, version of Cooper uh, that inhabits whatever this sort of meat suit. We don't, we don't, the, the, the whole ontic picture is not entirely clear. It is clear. I mean, it's to, it's perfectly clear, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know that, you know, what terms exactly um, Lynch is is subscribing to but you have the two Coopers in different worlds in this limbo state in the uh, Black Lodge and then he is exiled out into non-existence and he's picked up by this very curious character um who seems to be stationed, you know, in, in nowhere. And he, he is received by her in some way. Um, and in the process of getting back to the, quote, world, you know, he passes through this, um, an outlet, basically, a series of this giant outlet in space, and then he emerges through an outlet in a house in Las Vegas. And you immediately start to see echoes of worlds being mirrored. There is a sign in this Las Vegas town, Rancho Rio or something, but it's got the, the double R from the double R cafe. And that's, that's real obvious. And um, you have some other kind of, I call them handholds or handrails where the creator is is uh, really trying to help the audience, you know, pick up on some of this stuff, which um, was something I've I've had cause to to work with, and um, editors and such have have helped me do this. And it, I have to say, I admitted this to my wife that. Um, some of the stuff, even though I'm aware of it as a creator, you know, I still miss it uh, as the observer of the listener. So I'm not <laughs> denigrating uh, anybody who missed it. 
but it's where the art comes in for me is in these examples i think it's episode three or four it's maybe three and four he's using these different color palettes and he's placing them on these these female characters and they you know they're basically wearing the classic red drapes or curtains that are in the black lodge um it's the same it's a similar fabric and it shows up i think on three different women and in some sense this is an archetype union or or not it's certainly a literary device going back way way you know to who knows how long um to me it remind it reminds of that leonard cohen song the sisters of mercy and women are often depicted as having having a role in this portal situation whether and of course too you know if you if you study those first few episodes when the action of a portal happens there seems to coincide with some sex and sex is definitely I'm not prepared to, we don't have the time, and it would be kind of outside of the scope of this, but we can definitely touch on this, and we should, um, because one of the one of the things that I think uh, in some ways is polluting the discussion about men being men and um, the reemergence of a, of warrior cults which you know make no mistake that is of a great and serious dead serious importance to me and that is one of the major themes of this here podcast so we should probably set it on the back burner for now um, and return to just this literary observation that oftentimes accompanying arrivals departures journeys and uh to say nothing of like um sanctuaries and um help you know when you need it most oftentimes this is pictured and this goes back to uh the theotokos um mother mary uh this type of imagery in the Lynchian case here, um, and again, if you guys study these or just you know check these episodes out and watch watch this these women. There's one woman who's like a drug addict who's holed up in this house across from Dougie's um, rental or whatever. He's he's entertaining this hooker whore at this house, and across the way is this junkie. She's definitely wearing this color. Um, and then that color is echoed in a couple other instances. You have this yellow Jeep color merging between scenes seamlessly um, right around that same time frame. And what he's doing is essentially stitching together for your subconscious mind using the language of art 
a and you know an expression of something that's maybe not entirely particular totally scientifically in heideggerian terms you know worked out such that well can i buy it and reproduce it well probably fuck probably not buddy what you probably have to do is put in as much work as david lynch did because one thing about this guy you know he may be considered an odd dude but i have great admiration for this guy and you know he's done nothing but produce work his entire career whether it was furniture or paintings or albums or books or photographs or you know films that will uh if society is here 200 years from now one or two of these movies um will still be here i think and so it's for this reason of David Lynch's devotion to his art and the integrity evidenced in these fine uh, fine details to say nothing of, well, there's, there is, there's some substance here. Now, whether it's worked out to perfection and a perfect um, expression of you know, how portals work is kind of beside the point. I don't necessarily have a, a point other than to draw attention to this relationship between a man who I think has integrity in David Lynch and another man who I think has integrity in Michael Hoffman, who are both of them at way different ends of the like social proof scale. Uh, nothing against Michael Hoffman. I mean, if you write some of the shit that he's written, like, no, you're you're not you're going to be blackballed and the ADL is going to uh throw hate at you and etc. So what exactly is going on there? I do not think in any way that um these guys are in cahoots. I don't think that Lynch is doing any type of you know, watering down of the Hoffman narrative or anything like this. I think most of this has just skipped, you know, like slipped under the radar. And I'd be curious to know how much of it, you know, what does Michael Hoffman think about it? Because there might be some access to him. I've, I have not yet attempted to contact him regarding an interview. And, uh, you know, unless uh, the Patreon subscribers uh, subscription numbers really rock it up, uh, you know, David Lynch is probably not accessible. But um, maybe, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be negative at all. I mean, I don't know. I would um, I would kill a lot of people, certain people, uh, you know, under the right circumstances in order to hang out with David Lynch. I'm joking, of course. Uh, if if handlers have been assigned at this point, you know, I'm just kidding. So to tie these together in this uh this segment, I think I want to go back to uh to Heidegger. And we left off in the last episode with his concept of what I think is called or pronounced sorge. And um, 
and he's you know Heidegger had a a way of creating his own shorthand which makes sense um for if you're doing the kind of work that he's doing it just makes sense to me but as far as I can understand it sorge essentially means a kind of care and it seems to me that he means this in the sense of the sort of he does give examples of exactly what he means and I believe that he means the kind of care that you would extend into something like a lifelong devotion to an art project as well as the kind of care that you would extend to uh, a friend or family member you know under in dire straits kind of constancy a devotion and he's, Heidegger says that this can really only arrive in the state of authenticity. So NPCs aren't really given to this, which makes sense. And through on authenticity, you know, you're opened up to whether I have the sequencing right or wrong. It's, it's probably important to Heidegger, but I don't, not, I don't really care. At some point in this process, you know, if you read the essay on death work, I give an example of this. You're you need to be you need to be cracked open like an egg and to to the reality of of your mortality. And I believe that extending this sort of this sorge into your own situation may be the positive way to twist back the kind of uh, attention that's like hyper focused on the self and a lot of the you know self help um, literature and podcasts and everything else. Where if you talk to some of these people who are super deep into it, you know, once you stop talking about their particular um, psychodrama that they're entertaining right now like they don't have anything to talk about other than that and you know it's it, it, like I said earlier I think that a lot of this a lot of what you're doing when you are uh, smoothing out the trauma loop and unraveling this relationship between your emotional centers your intuitive centers and your pure reasoning logic centers you know a lot of what's really happening here is you're you're sorting out fine fine pieces from other fine pieces because as that expression goes you know uh the best lies are what is it uh nine parts truth and and one part bullshit and you know you you sneak the medicine in with the sugar so to speak so with sorge applied to what i, I hope is becoming clear in a in a relation in a r relationship of behaviors that are available to you to adopt these being 
mainly a, re a recognition of the uncertainism pervading our times, you know, and that includes a sort of ongoing analysis of it, which is now I, I would refer to that's the Hoffman piece, you know, um, Hoffman in his language allows for, you know, a certain ambiguity. Uh, you might be wrong about this deal, this detail or that, but the trajectory again is going north. We're not talking about something that's going south. It's definitely bad. It is not good. This is the effect of psychological operations. These are the operations and there you go. Death work here related to sorge, you know, what I'm trying to kind of put put in place hopefully for you guys is a certain kind of care for your own time remaining. Um, what do you really want to do with it? I mean, personally speaking on this level, there's a lot that I want to do for my children. There's a lot I want to do for my wife and some other family members there's there are a few big pieces of you know creative output that i want to invest my time in one of the main things that's never going to be expressed other than you know insinuated or suggested at this point or that in this novel or that book or but hopefully very clearly in these podcasts is In the same way that breathwork seems to mirror this frog eggs uh, conversation, you know, this mirroring of the inner and outward, the, the breathwork itself seems to, insofar as you can take it on, seems to mirror this relationship with God. It's said that God accounts for every hair. Every hair is numbered just as every grain of sand. Um, that's not biblical, that's Bob Dylan, but I think he stole that from the Bible. But you see the point, there is this absolute intimacy implied in everything that is implied through panentheism. That if this is the state that God, this unfathomable being, is in my Sig and in my Winkler and in my dogs, as well as in my child, as well as in the trees and the grass and the sand and, every, and, and space and empty space and all of being itself, the totality of existence. If every hair is numbered, every breath is numbered. And the more the science comes out that suggests breathing through your mouth is not bueno and it's in direct relationship with all of these maladaptive, dysfunctional, eventually turning to conditions, diseases, ongoing. And th this is the type of relationship that's available to us to create just simply through breath. 
okay? So what is available to us in terms of ritual and its our relationship to death through ritual? And in having the uh, unfortunate, very unfortunate um, funereal experience recently, I can tell you that if the modern kind of standard American, no offense to Protestants, but generally Protestant funeral is not a psychological operation, I, if it is, I'm not in the least surprised. And if it is not, then it is absolutely working right in his hand and glove as a result of all of these psychological operations. And I would include this in Hoffman's terms going back millennia to where tribes are dispersed, the sort of uh, corporate homogeneity begins, the consolidation, and differences, true diversity is erased from the earth. And so we have again this phenomenon of lies regarding one thing mirroring a truth in another and then both of these extant on the interior and the exterior. So much has been done about the exterior in you know in this I think you're picking up what I'm putting down uh, in this regard. I mean, many, many conversations have opened up many eyes, I would say, since 2016, 2014, regarding, you know, what would be, what would be true diversity. How it escapes everybody that the hippies of permaculture proved long ago that... Um, you know, true strength and diversity uh, still requires that each plant have, you know, its space and that a monoculture does not yield strong, nutritious fruit. It just degrades and degrades and degrades. And it has to be filled with, pumped full of this chemical or that chemical, which sucks another resource off of off of the planet. So we start to see, I hope, a picture that is actually cohesive in its um, in its mechanisms of destruction. It's uh, I guess you could maybe sum it up to say, you know, the trauma loop is definitely on the external now too, and it's collectivized. It's being unif It's being made uniform. And as we are being attempted to be made fully into cattle and have our humanity completely extinguished or diminished in some transhumanist uh, nightmare, dystopian hellscape. I think that the 
The Heideggerian idea of sorge can be extended into a practice of ritualized death work and thereby you will find interior portals. This may be what uh, Ernst Jünger, you know, was suggesting in the Forest Passage. It seems to me that the Forest Passage was a metaphor for something internal. And while I found his book quite good and, um, you know, moving in its way, I think that I would like to talk to him um, when we all cross over to the other side. If, that's, if there's an opportunity to sit down and, and tell him what my take on it would be, um, not to, dismir- to besmirch the man's anything about him. Um, far more man than than I could ever hope to be. However, I would trifle on this point where if we examine panentheism and we start to see that at some level, the inner and the outer, these distinctions are likely made for our survival. It's probably not the capital R essential reality Uh, I don't think that God requires that. I don't think that a true conception of a totally omniscient being, you know, would require anything like that. I think this whole creation is is just like the Bible says, um, made for us, for what we don't know. I believe that this, these self-help folks are onto something Again, you know, the fine, the fine, fine threads needing to be parsed out of the fine, fine threads, not a real strength of um, the, the remnant red church, you know. Fuck that, get her done. Well, yeah, there's absolutely a time for fuck that and get her done. A hundred percent, trust me. There's also a time where, you know, you're not going to make the Sistine Chapel by getting her done. You're not going to make... Uh, as McCarthy says towards the end of um, No Country for Old Men in that conversation between the sheriff, I believe, and his, his uncle, a great uncle, you know, why did this man sit down and carve into the bedrock a water trough out of solid stone to last 10,000 years? Why did he do that? It's no accident that the sheriff who finds himself unable to face, by his own admission, the tide in front of him. It's no accident that that man is a Texan. It's no accident that that man's a sheriff. It's no accident that, you know, he doesn't have a great insight into the blue hair and the bones in their nose. And yes, sir, no, ma'am. He's befuddled. He is awash in uncertaintism, and he knows that he is outclassed. And he is also likewise befuddled by the actions of this unknown person, this artist, who would sit down and devote his life to this project, or hours of, you know, probably presumably work all day, come home and chip away at this thing in, in the evenings before crashing out. Why would he do this? He knows there's something there. Uh, Sheriff Bell knows. 
there's something, some mystery encased in this memory that is seared into his mind that comes up in this, you know, uh, moving, emotional sort of conversation with his uncle. And um, the folks who find themselves, you know, with, with the knife to their throat right now, flyover folks, southern folks, um, I think this is the lesson, you know, this is hopefully, I don't have a, I have what, I have maybe a foot in both camps, or maybe, honestly, I don't think I have a foot in either anymore. That's just the honest fact. Um, and my history, you know, would suggest that I, I hope has plenty of experience in both camps. But I have taken this this uh, forest passage, I suppose, quite a while before I ever read that book. And um, the way that that is done, the way that this portal that I believe is this uh, made of this third substance, neither material nor non-material, but some yet undefined admixture of the two and probably some other thing this is the state of things you know death is not the end then what is it it's not this absurd notion of a man floating in the sky with a beard and some pearly fucking gates and you're going to stand there and have an account again Earth itself is more complicated than that, more nuanced, more magical, more, as Peugeot says, already much, 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 much more enchanted. I do not believe that this is the type of experience we are headed towards. And I think that some of the depression and some of the anxiety can be alleviated by exploring these ideas. And if you can apply this constancy that Heidegger speaks of, this kind of care, okay, with a capital C, great care. And yeah, that extends to, you know, uh, brute force at times. That extends to absolute precision, it seems, almost all of the time, however. And this is this distinction that seems to be lacking. And there's much discussion and we can go into the history of why and, you know, the warriors were separated from the scholars and the, um, one of my favorites that I, having southern roots myself, I do not feel like, you know, I'm, I'm shitting on anybody's dinner plate here. Um, I found it very interesting, the reports regarding debates between the Yankees and the Southerners, how it, it, it appears that the Southerners would just walk all over the Yankees. That until, you know, certain members of, of various tribes were integrated into the fabric of things, that the folks coming from uh, whatever this coalition uh, of the 
of the unwilling, you know, unwilling to do the work, unwilling to find care, unwilling to sacrifice this ongoing sort of miss, like uh, mixed up mutt group that has power now, you know, when these people confronted the Southern legal man, I mean, they were put in their place. And so there's precedent for this and yet there's not because I, I'm attempting to to speak on this earlier there are some leaps that need to be made in terms of um, call it cultural appropriation or whatever I mean Stuff like breath work um, or death work in whatever form you choose to take it needs to be given in this sort of topical level to the to the the rituals that we still have lingering around that are no rituals at all they're just empty, depressing. There's this movie, great movie called um, Big Bad Love. And uh, the main character's kid passes and he goes to the funeral and the, he's having this reverie hallucination and the, the preacher says, and a greater walk with thee blah blah and dust unto dust blah blah and uh, Arliss Howard I think made this movie and um, again you know he's he's not a guy here's a guy that movie didn't get very far you know I wonder why but I mean this is another guy who's doing essentially the work I, I am hoping to do just in this very explicit end of uh, pilot episode five here. It's a dishonor. And so when we speak about, you know, our people, Americans being degraded, we can talk about all sorts of statistics and policy recommendations and we can do this and fucking argue about it forever. Or you and I can just seize now back the things that are available to us. You know, are the breath is available right now, wherever you are. Your ability to apply precise, uh, a charged kind of care precision and force towards your interior the interiority of yourself you know namely this relationship between your traumatized two sides of the brain and then fold that out into the people around you and hopefully create portals that are again a third substance which changes all substance you know which changes 
the material conditions you find yourself in as well as for lack of any other word you know the mystical conditions that hopefully you find yourself in in uh, quiet uh, contemplative moments of solitude and we know that the manosphere uh, advocates solitude I'm just curious you know can you put down the whiskey after the first drink to loosen up can you can you actually hold a consistent even query you know you don't have to have a narrative we're going on to hour and 51 minutes in one take and I'm not bragging or trying believe me this isn't exactly the easiest thing for me to do I'm not you know 100% gifted with this if, if there's coherence to be had here it's through many 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 years of what I believe is sorge is there's a etymological discussion you know regarding this word and I'm I cannot recall all the particulars but it is suggested that the SO of SORGE the SOR you know relates to sorrow um, and this is maybe the place to close off in my experience having gone to some great lengths to mend these two areas of my in interior being myself I I believe that there is this is one of these signposts you know the greater men than I have walked this this road and they seem to have left suggestions that uh, there is an infinite kind of sorrow um, that cannot be ultimately assuaged and should not be should not be buried in avoid in avoidance behaviors or you know made made uh, many levels worse through these exacerbated dysfunctional breathing patterns and it should not just be denied by the you know there's plenty of false churches and, and I, you know not I'm not saying orthodoxy is perfect there's plenty of, of issues with it so don't don't miss misunderstand on that silly point there are plenty of false you know let's say preachers pastors etc certainly gurus who you know preach some type of infinite bliss um, and even in bliss it may be, maybe most of all in some you know uh, paradoxical sense bliss carries with it the knowing of sorrow uh, you can't have bliss without sorrow and so if you are experiencing bliss you know it's it's just flip the mirror around and there it is 
and uh, I don't. You could probably, you guys can pick up that you know I'm not advocating for you to not be happy, for you to have not have massive, abundant joy in your life. What I'm doing is hopefully laying out or leaving on the side of this trail a little marker or a note that indicates that if you experience something that may be described as uh, an ocean of sorrow and you have cause to despair because what other than an ocean of sorrow <laughs> might uh, lead to the the poisoned estuary of despair. If you notice this yourself, I think you're on the right road. And I think that through death work specifically, which we're going to go more into all of this stuff. This isn't the the end. This is this is me trying uh under some pretty tough circumstances to you know, to tie this up in a quasi-commercial product that I still feel good about. Um, the portals are, are somewhere on the other side of that sense. And um, if you need to understand, you know, what happened to us, there are plenty of books, but there are none that sum it up in quite the way that leads to an understanding of why trauma is the operant mechanism uh, for the technocratic uh, cabal of controllers that we face, the new world order, then I, there's nothing better than, than Michael Hoffman's work. Um, so I mentioned McCarthy and I've mentioned Lynch. Uh, I've mentioned Kelly Joe Phelps. I've mentioned uh, se several people who I would offer up as people who, again, in McCarthy's terms, you know, carved or devoted their lives to carving what may have just been a, a, an old forgotten water trough that nobody cares about or might have been something much, much grander than that. But um, the key was the devotion, and the key was in finding a way to put the sorrow to use the ocean as fuel into this Tan Chen concept. And uh, I don't think that I'm steering you guys wrong in this, and I hope that I'm not, you know, repeating stuff that if you already know it, you know, then hell send me some some feedback and uh, talk about the next steps on this road but I don't think that uh, we've made it as a species a hell of a lot farther you know I think that we're down once again to a place where we're gonna we're gonna figure out some things those of us that can put together these pieces create manufacture or discover these inner portals for us leading to uh, other realms, other worlds 
far beyond what seems possible now. And even if that's, like I said earlier, you know, uh, just this interior sort of hope, well, fuck, that's not so bad. I don't think that's what it is. I think that's the big mystery and that's the big potential of humanity. That's the key to this image of God. And, um, you know, this is contained as best my very limited, admitted understanding of the mystery, mystery of Christ and the resurrection is also tied right up into all of this discussion, the care, the focus, the sacrifice, the portal, the forces arrayed against us. So until next time, take care.